So we're in a series on the book of Philippians, and this morning's scripture reading uh, will be most of the chapter uh, of chapter 3 in the book of Philippians. So I'd love it if you could read along and just hear Paul's heart a little bit in this text as he exhorts the church at Philippi, which is a church that he planted. So in some sense, this is the pastor or the church planter writing back to his people, the people he knows or the people he's excited about, and he's, um, he's really wanting to encourage them in their faith. And he says this, beginning in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Now watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of, his, uh, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, let's open with just a word of prayer. Father, we would come this morning and humbly ask that um, today would, would be meaningful, that you would be able to somehow speak to our hearts, to shift our thinking, to alter our paradigms in the ways that they need to be altered, that you would be glorified in this, that we wouldn't walk out thinking more about ourselves, but somehow walking out with you first. The fear of, of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we wanna really begin understanding, knowing, and recognizing your presence uh, in your sovereignty in this moment. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Um, church is an interesting thing these days because there's a lot different than uh, I think there was at, at the church of Philippi. Um, so we're, we're still the local church. We're still men and women made in the image of God. We still gather uh, in the name of Christ, but yet there is a lot different than there was in the church of Philippi. My daughter asked me uh, if she could set up automatic recurring giving for her tithing uh, because she tends to forget. So a 13-year-old wanting to set up automated donations to a church, that's not something you would have found at the Church of Philippi. Uh, I went to a church recently where they had giving stations where it looked a lot like an ATM, but you didn't get any money back. Uh, and, and it was all kind of automated so you could put in credit card, 
debit card, whatever it was, and do automated giving, that's, that's very unique to the 21st century church. It's not something you would have found at Philippi. And so there's, there's an interesting thing in trying to figure out what is unique to our culture or to this day and age and which are the universal things that hold true in all places and all times with the church. And what Paul's speaking to in this passage in chapter three of the book of Philippians is he's probably speaking to the heart of all things spiritual as close as he can get it. He's, he's really exhorting people to come out of everything that they would be in, kind of all of the, the cubbies that they would be in that would be more tied to culture or, or kind of the day-to-day realities of life. And he's trying to call them out into a very focused, very pure, very simplistic uh, understanding of life submitted to and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This passage in, in the book of Philippians chapter three is probably outside of the, book, uh, the whole book of Hebrews, one of the most Christocentric chapters of the New Testament. Meaning the whole chapter is really trying to say there is Christ, Christ is above all, and let me show you how he is better than anything else. Nothing else matters than getting Christ and Christ alone. Uh, it's, it's a lot like the book of Hebrews where the writer to Hebrews says Christ is above the priests, he's above the prophets, he's above the king. There is nothing that is above Christ, Christ is above all. And so we kind of begin in this, and the first thing that Paul wants to talk about is something very specific to his day and age, which was the, the idea that somehow you had to make a, a lateral horizontal move before you made a vertical move in your relationship with Jesus. What's meant by that? Uh, that somehow a Gentile church, remember Philippi was a city kind of in this area of Macedonia. It's a Greek city. It was founded after Alexander the Great's father, uh, Philip. And, and so Philippi is not your, your, your typical Jewish city like Jerusalem would be. It certainly would have some Jewish influences, but most of the people that are being converted here are, are Gentile people that are coming to Christ. And what Paul's trying to warn them is that don't let people come in and tell you that you first have to become a Jew, and then secondly, you can become a Christian. That the first move would be from Gentile over here to accepting Judaism, and then in accepting Judaism, then you can connect to the Messiah who's Jesus. And so that's why Paul says that don't let these people come in and talk to you, these mutilators of the flesh, who are going to say that you have to be circumcised first, because that's the symbolic act of becoming from a Gentile to a Jew. And he's saying, we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, whose glory is in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. It's not something I do that, that kind of I, can, I contort to or become in my person that then allows me to gain access to Jesus. I gain access to Jesus by faith, and it's his grace that allows me to do that, and there's not a sense in which I become hyper-religious or, or look like I fit into the religious group that somehow is, is kind of the path or the thing that I do that gains favor with the Lord. And so he goes on and says, look, I can, t- I can tell you this because if anyone fits this category, 
this category of a very righteous religious person of, of that day and age, it's me. So Paul says, I'm uh, circumcised on the eighth day. I'm, I'm an Israelite of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and re- in regard to the law, a Pharisee, meaning I went to seminary, I went to religious school, I became a religious leader. And then as for zeal, I persecuted the church. I mean, I, I hunted down all the enemies of, of Judaism. I hunted down all the enemies of kind of this hyper-religious sect, and I persecuted that. And therefore, as regards to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Meaning, anything you could do for the law, I did. I, I was this person, okay? So when I'm telling you to bypass this, you go straight to Christ, in faith, and it's his grace that allows you to do that. I'm telling you to go straight to Christ, not to come over and bend into this kind of religious way of seeing life. I'm doing it as someone who understands this. So Paul continues and says, whatever was to my profit, all the the tokens I built up, all of the notches in my belt, all of the things that made me look really good in the eyes of society, I consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish, that I may may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So this is a really interesting thing. He first says, don't come to Christ in this way to become a part of the dominant religious group. And then he moves on and says, all things that are are to your credit, all things that would make you feel like you deserve Christ's uh, grace, that somehow you're ahead of everybody else, somehow you've gained access because there are a few things that make you unique and, and God's gonna recognize that and therefore you've earned a bit of that merit, a bit of that grace. Whatever you think is good, whatever you think makes you better than, Paul's saying all of that needs to be considered a loss. Get rid of all of that. That's somehow like light pollution that keeps you from seeing the beauty of the stars. That's something man-made that you've got up there that, that you're drawing satisfaction from that you're walking around feeling as if somehow your glory is a bit in your actions or the things you've done and not fully in the position that you have in Christ, which does not come from your actions, does not come from anything that you would merit as goodness because of personality, effort, or, or success, whatever it might be. So he first starts with this religious group and then he moves on and says, all of it needs to be discounted. Now, how does this fit today? It's really interesting because we do this a lot. I think the most significant instance that I've seen in recent memory was my late friend Richard Twiss. We uh, would talk often about this and I began to see the the missions movement in America a little bit differently. Um, Richard was Native American and one of the interesting things that had happened with Native American missions was that when the missionaries went in, the whole goal was to convert them first out of a native way of of being or thinking or doing into a Western Christian way of thinking or doing. Meaning you had to dress like the Western Christians, you have to become civilized like the Western Christians, you had to cut your long hair, 
you had to put the drums away because the drums were seen as, as satanic or evil. And so you, you really need to be civilized. And in being civilized, you'd be able to have a relationship with this Christian God. If you didn't begin to look like the Western kind of uh, picture uh, of Christendom, if you didn't begin to look like that, then it was doubted whether or not you really knew Christ. And so what the, the program was there was a lateral move, a horizontal move. You first have to kind of look like uh, us, talk like us, put those old things aside, and then fully understand this is what civilization is. And then in that, you're going to have this relationship with God. Do you see how that works? And so it's a really fascinating thing. Richard would ask me, he'd say, what do you think of the situation where a satanic worshiping punk, nothing against punk rock, but it's what Richard used to say. So a satanic worshiping punk rock drummer that's strung out on drugs and, and you name it and gets saved on Monday and by the next month as someone passionate about God who's cleaning up their act, the church goes to him and says, we'd really love you to be in the church worship band and play on the drums. Does that sound that far-fetched? It doesn't sound that far-fetched. And, and Richard would say, what, what do you think about that situation where the Satan-worshiping punk rock drummer all of a sudden a month later is being asked to play drums on the worship team, but in the native community, someone who is drumming as, as a way of trying to connect with creator as a very spiritual uh, thing with, the, with what they're, they're given, the knowledge that they have, Romans would say that even by nature, we can know something about the creator. Even if we don't have the fullness of the message, there's, there's a trace of that image of God in us where we can connect back to our creator and, and, and somehow seek to worship him. Paul's argument in Romans was the Gentiles put to shame, oftentimes uh, the Jewish people that have the fullness of the law. And I would say Native Americans in their worship sometimes put to shame Christians who have the fullness of the New Testament or the New Covenant. But so Richard would say, so here you have an individual who's drumming in the sense of, of worshiping creator and then they come to understand or hear the message of Christ and they accept Jesus into their life and in the fullness of their passion of wanting to worship, they're now told, you can never play the drums again because the drums are a cultural part of your pagan worship and, and it's connected to some kind of, of ritualistic or spiritualistic or demonic thing and therefore you have to give up drum, uh, drums permanently. And Richard would ask me, he's like, how does that make sense? And it only makes sense when we were caught up in this idea that we first have to make somebody look this way and put everything else behind and then they can come to have a relationship with Christ. Rather, the question should have been, <clears throat> if you can play the drums in good conscience as a worship to God, then by all means, use the gifts and the talents and the heart language that you have to worship God, right? That's, uh, that's not just with Native American communities. You can go to Africa and, and hear stories along the same lines. And, and you go back hundreds of years, some of the first missionaries were brought in as tutors to the children that were in Ghana and these areas on the Gold Coast that were being born out of wedlock to slaves um, who were being used as concubines. But now 
the, the child was half Christian because it was from a Western Christian person as a father. And so this child now would be put out into the community with the mom and, and, and sought to be given a Western Christian education. So some of the missionaries actually were coming in first and foremost as educators to those children, but then began to, to kind of hide behind walls in some of these slave fortresses, and many of them got caught up in the economics of what was going on, the slave trade and everything else, and it became very complicated as to what the mission really was, and the whole idea of, of Africa as the dark continent was, was owing to the fact of seeing it as savage, less civilized, and that somehow the Christian message was a part of the civilizing process of taking people out of savagery into civilized Western Christendom, and that in doing so, then they could meet the, the Savior or Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, there were some amazing missionaries that fought the bad missionaries and fought the slave traders and really sought to distance themselves. And you can read those heroic stories and they're unbelievable and marvelous. But the reality is for, for a long time, Christianity in, in the modern context, in the Western European context, really did the same thing that Paul's talking about here and saying, we want you to look and, and act and vibe like us first. That's a part of what we really want to see. And then in doing that, we're going to feel a lot more comfortable with you understanding and accepting a relationship with Jesus. Um, the instances where it was done good, uh, a friend of mine, Eugene Cho, will always speak well of missionaries because it was the missionaries in Korea that helped bring the gospel to his family that had originally been from Point... Uh, Pyongyang, uh, before the war, where they ended up then running to the south and then eventually being able to immigrate to the United States. Like he credits the missionaries with some unbelievable things that have happened in Korea. And I think we can take those instances in a lot of places. But there's a tendency here that we have to call out that says, are we looking for people to vibe like us so that we can be comfortable, accept them, and, and somehow approve of the way they're gonna express their faith in Jesus? Is that somehow a part of the program? And I would argue, I think we do it even today. At Antioch, at your small group, in this town, <clears throat> are there ways in which you would meet somebody and feel like that's gotta change, this has gotta change, um, and that has got to change if you're really gonna have a relationship with Jesus? That you have to really somehow become different or join a different kind of tribe or vibe, way of presenting yourself, way of understanding yourself, and then out of that context, you can springboard into a relationship with Christ. I think it's a, a real danger that we have to watch for, that we have to not take in some sense and, and go, if you go to an R-rated movie, um, you can't really have a relationship with Jesus. You have to first accept the way my family handles movies. Um, actually, I didn't mean that mine because that would be hypocritical. Um, but, but like someone like that. Uh, you, know, you don't have to first adopt that and then you can have this relationship, right? Or you, you have to somehow public school or somehow have to homeschool or somehow have to, if you're gonna be a real Christian, you have to somehow do things the way we've patterned it out those clothing patterns that my mom used to use when I was a kid. Um, luckily, I was a boy. She made more clothes for my sister than she made for me. But, 
you know, those patterns that you'd pin down. We don't have to try and say that someone's going to fit our pattern prior to them really being able to understand Jesus Christ. And Paul's warning people. He's saying, don't do that. Don't start there. Don't start with your pattern. You start with Christ and the fact that anyone where they're at can be called out of that position into a dynamic relationship with Christ where Christ is the head and in faith they receive the fullness of that grace and therefore have that relationship. If they're a Gentile, they do it as a Gentile believer. If they're a Jew, they do it as a Jewish believer. If they're a Roman, they do it as a Roman believer. But in all things, they come underneath the headship of Christ and then Christ informs the way they live their life. And it might not look culturally like what you think it should look like. But if they're doing that in faith in the fullness of their life experience, then that's their relationship with Christ and it's a beautiful thing. So this is what Paul begins. And then he says, you know what? It's bigger than that. Um, I consider everything a loss compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And if we skip ahead to verse 10, he says this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me read that again. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is one of the hallmark verses of the New Testament, Philippians 3.10 here. The Greek for I know in this tense is this incredibly focused, uh, prioritized way of knowing. And some translations, Paul will say, it, it, they'll add the phrase, it is my aim to know to try and just really bring up the sense of, of direction that's going on with knowing here. Um, I want to know, like this is my prime directive in life. In modern language, it would be my mission statement. This is the end. Everything else is the means. And what is the end? What is the mission statement? I want to know the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings, and then ultimately to attain to the resurrection of the dead. It maps on to the three senses of salvation that we have in, in Christianity. In Christianity, we talk about when you come to know Christ, that you're justified, that whatever sins you have, there's grace, and that in that grace, you, you're now adopted into a relationship with God. You become a son or a daughter, and you find that relationship with God. And then there's sanctification, which is the working out of, of this relationship with God in your life as you slowly become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. This is why people don't understand what it means to be let down by Christians. Because we, we, don't, we don't talk about this. We, we only talk about justification. Like you, you're now a Christian. You once weren't, now you are. And then we just leave it there. And then when these Christian people mess you up, let you down, you see them to be hypocritical. You kind of throw up your hands and you say, just to hell with the whole lot of it. Like, I'm not going to go back to church. Those people are hypocrites. And, and that understanding is a bit faulty. These are imperfect people who have been called out into this relationship with Christ and who are slowly, hopefully maturing, but are going to relapse plenty. And they're going to let down people aplenty but they're being sanctified, it's a process. And Christians are messy people. When you come to a church, you're gonna get messed up. 
You're gonna get disappointed. That shouldn't surprise us because frankly, the more involved we are, the more we're gonna be guilty of messing people up ourselves, right? The only people that can get ultimately really frustrated with being disappointed by Christians in a church are the people that are really on the edge because they haven't gotten close enough to be a part of the mess. Does that make sense? I think the closer you get and the more you mess other people up, the more you can forgive people that are messing people up. See the logic in that? It's actually good logic. So we're, we're justified. We come into this relationship and then we're in this process of sanctification and then ultimately we have hope in the resurrection where we, where we come to the fullness, as Paul would say, attaining somehow to the resurrection from the dead ourselves. So justification, sanctification, glorification, that Paul is saying, my aim is not to know one part of it. My, my aim is to know all of this. Everything in my life, the prime directive here is to know. What does it mean to know grace that I've been saved? What does it mean to know Jesus as my Lord, the one whom I submit all things to, the one I look to for strength, the one I, I get up in the morning and say, what is your will for my life? Not help out, you know, my will for my life, but, but this program is about me being submitted to you, not you helping my agenda, which is what we do to Christianity, right? Most of our prayers, I would really love some divine help and assistance with this, with this, with, with, with my child here, with my job there, with my finances over here. And it's not that that's all that bad, but if that's all we're praying, is, is the end really knowing Christ? Or is the end really seeking a blessed life that we've kind of prescribed or patterned out for ourselves? You see, we turn knowing Christ into the means to the end of having the kind of life we, we long or desire for. Rather than saying, in this life, I, I want to find the means that are going to help me attain to the end of knowing Christ. And you want to know what one of the biggest means is of how we know Christ? Fellowship in his suffering. By the way, that never shows up when we say Jesus is a means to the end of our good life. Where in that equation does suffering show up at all? It doesn't make any sense. But when we say the end is knowing Christ, and so what are the means that I need to know Christ, suffering becomes really the dominant word. Why is that? I wrote a whole paper in grad school on the problem of evil. So the problem of evil is God has these, these sons and daughters he's created. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. So why do, do they have this suffering, and where does this evil come from? And, and frankly, why does God allow that? Why doesn't he intervene more often? And, and I argued a couple things, but my, my final argument was simply this. I don't know why. I don't have the answer for all of it. But it's a very curious thing that in suffering, we tend to do what more? We tend to seek out God more in our suffering than we do in our, in our comfort or our luxury when things are going really well for me, uh, 
my relationship slowly uh, dissolves into a thanking God for making me better than other people. I don't know why you chose me, God, but it's pretty cool that everything's going well. Like, hey, you're really, you're really getting this one right. You know, what's the next cool thing that's going to happen? What's the next cool thing? What's the next cool thing? Um, my kid's getting this right. Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if they got everything right? Ooh, God, God, can we shoot for that goal? Like, that my kid gets everything right? That I never have to suffer as a parent? That they make every right choice? that the, the, the guys that they marry become like the coolest son-in-laws you could ever want and that they all get along perfectly and, and that this is gonna happen and that's gonna happen and that their kids, my grandkids, I mean, wouldn't that be amazing if I was the patriarch of some empire of perfect Christians who all were economically viable and, and really looked pretty because that matters in this world. Do you see how quickly it can snowball to being about me? And in all that, I'm like, God, you would get so much glory from that. <laughs> the Whites McClan, uh, the pretty people who love God and, and all go to church and the kids do automatic payment on tithing, like, God, you would, you would so get the glory from that. I don't see why you wouldn't be a, a part of that program. I... I, when I get fixated on my life, and when, especially when things are going well, it's amazing how I can create this, this wonderful story for God, a wonderful idea for him that he should enact in my life. And rather, when it's not going my way, when my health isn't going my way, uh, when relationships aren't going my way, when when things just don't even make sense and I'm getting persecuted or, or it's painful or my desire is to just love and be loved somehow aren't being received and there's that, that, that weird alienation that comes and you feel like, God, what, what in the world? Like that, right? Then when I go to God, what do I usually say? God, please, I need grace. Please, I need to know that you're, you're there. I need to feel your touch. I need to know that you care. You know what, God? I, it doesn't have to be perfect in my life. I just wanna know that I'm living submitted to you. I just wanna know that I'm putting you first. I don't wanna be anywhere else. All of it, the rest of it is rubbish. The rest of it, like, I, I don't need that other stuff. I just need to know when I lay down at night and I go to bed that things are all right with you. If that's the one thing that I can hang on to, you know what, that's enough. Because strangely, I find joy in that. Strangely, I find peace in that. Strangely, I can live with myself knowing that my desires at least are good, even if I can't, I can't somehow get them into the world in the way that I would want to or that people aren't receiving me the way I would want to be received. You know what? The pain of, of broken relationship or having enemies out there, you know what? When I'm alone, I can't bear that. When I'm with you, tucked underneath your wing, I, I can withstand that. You know what? Jesus went through that. You know what? I think I understand a little bit more about what this Christian life is about. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, let me, let me put it this way. Understanding where God is located starts every conversation about something else. 
we started a conversation at Antioch about a theology of justice that actually now spans the globe, which wasn't talking about justice by looking at justice. It was saying, we're going to look at God first. Where's God located? And then we're going to understand justice in relationship to God. We're going to have a theology of justice. And because of God, we now know what this might look like or should look like or ought to look. It's what we're doing with creativity. Because God... We, we now understand creativity and the beauty of it. And that not, creativity isn't just for artists, the 10% out there, that all of us are creative. Our creativity shows in our kids. Our creativity shows in the decisions we make for uh, dinner or, or going on vacation or affirmation to people or, or different ways of serving. Like in all of that, we make choices We exercise creativity. We do it because we were made in the image of a God that gave us free will and God is creative and therefore we're creative. And and because of this, there's this. Because God inspires us to live differently, we have this wonderful blessing of seeking out how to live in this world in a way that shines, that, that there's somehow something about creativity that's really beautiful. And it extends out of Sunday into the work week. So, We look at God first and we understand things secondly juxtaposed to where God is. Instead of just taking them and saying, let's take all the Christian pieces and analyze it. Marriage, well, it's helpful if you do this and do that. Uh, Serving or having a ministry, well, here's the reason you should feel guilty about not serving more. It's like, no, you start with God first and that God sheds light on the subject itself. That's what we mean by a theology of service, theology of leadership. The fear of the Lord, meaning God first, is the beginning of wisdom, which means how to live in this world. And when we start with, in all things, I want to know you, Jesus, now we come to wisdom and it says, I need to know what it means to to share in your suffering. There's fellowship in that. There's intimacy in that. You see, we start individualistically way too often, and then we ask God to bless that agenda, God's agenda is relational. Ours is individualistic, as if we're this one kind of uh, singularity. God's agenda is relational. So listen to what it gets juxtaposed to down here at the bottom of chapter 3. Verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. So he's now juxtaposing those three things that he wants to know, all with Christ as the head, saying that the opposite of that, when you're an enemy of Christ, your destiny is destruction, your God is your stomach, meaning your appetites lead you forward. You're serving your appetites. It's that individualistic agenda Their God is their stomach, and then their glory is in their shame, meaning the things you think are great about you are when you think there are things good about you. Let me say that again. The things you think are great about you are when you think there's something good about you. The glory in this world isn't that God has us and that we're slowly being knit into this oneness or this relationship with God, but rather that when things are going well in my life, I begin to take glory or I think there's greatness here in my individual life when there's good things happening. 
It's a complete flipped agenda. And so Paul's really setting up this dichotomy. He's saying it's citizens of heaven. That's where he goes to next. We're citizens of heaven. It's the heavenly kingdom that should be coming down here. Um, That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the way it is in heaven, this relationship that it's all about oneness should be done on earth. It doesn't say it should be done in heaven as it's done on earth. That my greatness on earth should somehow translate into my greatness in the kingdom of God. That somehow it being about me on earth and all things about my stomach and my appetites, that that really should have a place in God's heaven. And so we don't go bottom up. It comes top down. So real quickly, and then we're gonna make a, a, a radical juxtaposition here as Pete's going to come up and share for about 15 minutes. Church is not about being cool. If this looks like a bad version of other things you do in, in your, your life, if it looks like a lesser version of, of other things where we're trying to just meld in so that it matches up to our lives, we don't really have much to offer, do we? Church is really a sacred place with, with saints, with holy people who've been set apart unto Christ that gather together and it's the one time in the week that something radically different should be at the center, meaning a sacred worship, a sacred conversation around sacred texts, around this sacred calling where Christ is gonna be above all things, where we slowly repattern our life to think differently, not on earthly things first, but on heavenly things first. And then as we encourage one another in this sacred assembly, we go out into the week and we see our jobs different, we see community different, we see the city different. And, and by the way, we have a wonderful book cart that Kip and Pete have done a, a, a real phenomenal job and Bill... Uh, Mankey, there's lots of other people that help with that, but there's books on helping connect your faith to your vocation. I'd highly recommend you go pick one up. But this ends up kind of feeding into the work week where, where we're, we're putting God first and then we're seeing our job or our community or whatever it might be through the lens of God first. A theology of city, a theology of work, a theology of education for our kids, a theology of family in all things. So one of the things Antioch's been trying to do for a while is we're gonna bring more sacred in, whether it's communion, the Lord's table, whether it's uh, Lent, whether it's going through Advent and really trying to focus on what does Christmas mean as a radical countercultural thing to say empire. I love using that word. Um, but, but, you know, the, the way things would be according to the, the ways of the world, rather, what does Advent look like with the coming of the king? in a manger, flipping the whole power paradigm upside down. What does that look like? And so it's, it's a fun thing we're gonna be kind of embarking on and we, we ask you guys just to join us and to say that if, if church is really gonna attract our kids, our friends, the people in the city, it has to offer something radically different that they know deep down inside they need that they're not gonna get anywhere else. People have to come in here and see Christ, and feel Christ, and hear about Christ, and know that they can worship Christ. And in the end, realize that the goal isn't to serve their own agenda via Christ, but to submit their agenda to the Lordship of Christ. Amen? All right.